Once again, we have a wonderful privilege of opening up the Word of God and having Him speak to us through it. So will you take your Bibles this morning and turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11 under the heading, The Coronation of King Jesus. And I pray that you will be able to see and to savor Christ and his majestic splendor and beauty and be impelled to holiness and and doxology and to catch just a vision of the grandeur of God that changes us. Follow along as I read the text, Matthew 21, beginning in verse 1. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did, just as Jesus had instructed them, and brought the donkey and the colt, and laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowds spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Today we celebrate what is traditionally called Palm Sunday, commemorating this triumphal entry of the Lord Jesus Christ into Jerusalem. Although this event, as you will see, actually took place on Monday. Jerusalem was was just electric with excitement, At this time, it's estimated that about 2.6 million Jews were in Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Many of them had been healed by Jesus. Thousands of them had witnessed his miracles. Many of them had just witnessed the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Now this massive crowd congregates around Jesus as he makes Uh, a two-mile trek from Bethany into Jerusalem. Of course, word that he was coming had spread like wildfire. We know that messianic fervor was was ablaze with hope that their long-awaited Messiah had finally come to deliver them from Rome during the Passover season, which, by the way, commemorated the ancient the ancient deliverance of the Jews from Egypt. Little did they know that the Messiah King they coronated on Monday would be the Passover lamb that they would crucify on Friday. Little did they know that Jesus had initiated all of this as judgment against Israel, causing them to affirm his messianic credentials by crying out, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. But by the end of the week, they would say, we will not have this man reign over us. Crucify him. Let me give you some context here. Just prior to entering Jerusalem from Jericho, Jesus had refuted the idea that the kingdom was going to come immediately, that it would appear immediately, which was a common misconception among the Jewish people. We read about this, for example, in Luke 19.11. It says, while they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem. And they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear 
immediately. But Jesus also wanted to demonstrate to them that the Messiah must first depart and then return as king to establish his kingdom. In verse 12 of Luke 19, we read, So he said, A nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. Now, his listeners would have understood the historical background of what Jesus was saying in this parable because it was rooted in actual events in their political history. In fact, all native princes were required to journey to journey to Rome to receive the right to rule. And this was true of Herod Archelaus, with whom they were all familiar. His father was Herod the Great, along, and, and along with the army had all approved and proclaimed Archelaus, the new leader, but he did not have the right to rule until he first received permission from Caesar Augustus in Rome. So he had to go to Rome, which took many months to receive that permission. In fact, we read in history that many of the Jews followed him to Rome to contest uh, with a petition uh, to prevent him from ruling over them. However, in 4 BC, Caesar Augustus granted him authority to rule over Samaria, Judea, and Idumea. So before he could reign over his kingdom, he had to receive authority to rule. So in Luke 19.12, the nobleman represents Jesus who travels to a, quote, distant country, which is a reference to heaven, which is connected to his resurrection and ascension. There he would gain official authority from the Father and, quote, receive a kingdom for himself. Only then could he return and reign over his kingdom. And for this reason, Jesus says in Matthew 28.18, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Moreover, we could read in Psalm 110, where the psalmist declares that David's Lord, the Messiah, must have a session at the right hand of God in heaven before he comes to rule upon the earth. And in Acts 3, verses 19 through 21, there's a description of the coming era of the millennial kingdom, And it's described as, quote, times of refreshing and times of restoration of all things. And there we learn in Acts 3.21 that, quote, heaven must receive Jesus until the period of restoration of all things. So the point is, this is the same sequence that occurred with Archelaus. And so the Jewish people would have understood all of this. Now, back to Luke 19 for just a moment. And we will get to Matthew 21 in just a bit. In verses 13 through 15, Jesus continues with his parable. He says, And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas, which is a Greek form of money. That would have been uh, the equivalent of about a three-month salary. And he said to them, Do business with this until I come back. Now these slaves, therefore, represent servants of Christ who will use their gifts and use their talents for Jesus in this interim period before Christ's second coming. The parable goes on, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. And these, of course, represent unbelievers who hate the nobleman, the Lord Jesus Christ, and refuse his rule over them, which is consistent with the majority of the world today. When he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. And then the parable, as you will recall, goes on to discuss how three of the servants used their minas and the citizens um, that were opposed to the nobleman were slain and so forth. And Jesus also describes how the faithful slaves were given ruling authority in the nobleman's kingdom. In fact, the first slave was given, quote, authority over ten cities in verse 17, and the second servant received authority over five cities in verse 18. But what's interesting is neither the nobleman nor the faithful servants were reigning with the nobleman when he was traveling to the distant country. They only reigned with him when he returned. 
And we see these truths underscored in other passages in Scripture where there's a description of how we as the saints will reign with Christ and that will coincide with, obviously, his messianic reign. Look at Revelation 2, 26 through 27, Revelation 5 and verse 10. So the point with all of this is that the purpose of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem was to present himself to Israel as their Messiah King. But consistent with his parable in Luke 19, Israel's rejection of Jesus would mean that the kingdom's arrival would be delayed and Israel would face judgment for rejecting their Messiah. However, a day is coming when Israel will cry out to Jesus and experience national salvation and restoration but the Messiah's universal reign over the earth will not be established until he returns from heaven after having received authority from the Father to reign, which, by the way, he now has. Moreover, when he returns, he will reward his faithful servants who use their gifts and use their talents between his two comings, and part of that reward will be to grant them ruling authority in his kingdom according to the level of their faithfulness. Unbelievers, of course, as Jesus describes, will be destroyed. Now, first century people didn't understand any of this. The disciples didn't understand any of this until after Jesus was glorified, after the Holy Spirit came upon them. We can read this, for example, in John 12:16. No one really understood the nature of Jesus' kingdom. They didn't understand what was going on. Frankly, they did not understand, as most people today do not understand, that they have a much bigger problem with God than they did with Rome. They didn't understand that they first must be delivered from their sin before they could ever experience the blessings of the kingdom. So here in Matthew 21, 1 through 11, Jesus presents himself as Israel's Messiah, but the blessings of his universal reign upon the earth and his millennial kingdom were conditioned upon Israel's repentance and belief in their king. Jesus, for example, said in Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. But they refused, despite all of his miracles, Miracles performed to authenticate both the message and Jesus as the messenger. Now, in the text before us, as the king makes his solemn march to his rejection and to his crucifixion at the hands of his own kinsmen, it's important for us to, to understand that Jesus is meticulous not to omit one single physical detail of the Old Testament prophecies concerning the long-awaited kingdom. Here our precious Savior enters into the very city that he established. It was the place of Mount Moriah where Abraham's faith was tested and confirmed by his willingness to trust God regarding the sacrifice of his son Isaac, whom he knew God would raise from the dead. This was Jerusalem, it was the resting place of the Ark of the Covenant, which was the symbol of God's glorious presence, his Shekinah. It was Mount Zion, the city of God, the holy city upon a hill. It was the place that contained at one time Solomon's temple, and now it contains the second temple. It was that city of which he earlier lamented, remember in Luke thirteen thirty-four, Oh, Jerusalem, Jesus said. Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. And I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. A reference to his second coming. But we must also understand that the Messiah King does not enter into the city with great joy, but with immense sorrow. Tears would have been flowing down his cheeks 
We read of this in Luke 19, beginning in verse 41. And when he approached, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the day shall come upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank before you and surround you and hem you in on every side and will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Of course, this was literally fulfilled a few years later in A.D. 70 on April 9th when Titus Vespasian laid siege against Israel in the summer, slowly starving the inhabitants. And then the Romans came in and systematically slaughtered them, attacking one part of the city at a time, utterly destroying the temple, taking many Jewish people captives to Rome to be mocked and butchered in the Roman circus and the gladiatorial bouts. So you must understand that our Lord's entrance into Jerusalem marks the beginning of the Passion Week, a time of great sorrow. He knows that he is going to suffer and die, but also that he will be raised from the dead. Now to help us grasp the astounding realities surrounding this text, I have divided it into three sections that I hope will help us glean what God would have for us. The coronation of our king was, number one, preordained. Number two, it was symbolic. And number three, it was judicial. And I pray that we will all get lost once again in the wonder of God's kingdom purposes and the glory of his grace towards those who trust in him. So first of all, I want you to see that his coronation was preordained. Notice verse 1, when they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives. Now I want to just stop right there. Think about it. For 30 years, Jesus had lived in utter obscurity. And then he ministers publicly for three years, always obedient to do the Father's will. And now, unlike any other coronation of a king, he enters into Jerusalem with no pomp, with no ceremony, with no magnificent pageantry, all of which was ordained in eternity past, as we will see. Now again, multitudes of people are following him from Jericho, going to to Passover. Many others from Bethpage, a small village close to Bethany. That was the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. In fact, in John 12, Verses 1 through 3, we read how Jesus visited them, quote, six days before the Passover. There, no doubt, he came to find comfort and strength in their fellowship, knowing that he was about to be the Passover lamb. This was Passover. So thousands of Jewish faithful were making their annual pilgrimage. In fact, census records of that era 10 years ago that we have historically tell us that There were 260,000 lambs that were slaughtered at Passover. And that would have been at least a minimum of one lamb for every 10 people, which meant there would have been about 2.6 million Jews there at Passover 10 years later. Perhaps there was the same amount, may have been more, when Jesus entered the city 10 years earlier. Now, according to John... Jesus was at Bethany, quote, six days before the Passover. So that would have been on Shabbat, on Saturday. Therefore, it was on the next day, Sunday, that the Jewish crowds came to see Jesus and Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead, according to John 12. And then in verse 12 of John 12, we read, on the next day, which would have been Monday, The great multitude who had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So it was more likely that it was on Monday rather than the traditional Palm Sunday after Jesus had been at Bethany with Lazarus that he traveled through Bethpage making his way through the eastern gate of Jerusalem. 
I might add that a Monday triumphal entry is also very important because in Exodus chapter 12, verses 2 through 6, we read that in the Mosaic law, it was required that sacrificial lambs for Passover to be selected on the 10th day of the first month. And they would take the lamb into the home and everybody would fall in love with the little lamb until it was time for it to be sacrificed on the 14th. And only a Monday triumphal entry would fulfill this important symbolism. Because the year Jesus was crucified, the 10th of Nisan was on the Monday of the Passover week. And this would allow Jews to symbolically and nationally select Jesus as their Passover lamb, giving them an opportunity to take him into their hearts and to love him, and then sacrifice him on Friday, the 14th of Nisan. But folks, what is truly fascinating is that this amazing event recorded in, recorded in Scripture was decreed by our sovereign God in eternity past. This didn't just happen. In fact, 600 years before, the Holy Spirit revealed some amazing truths to the prophet Daniel, giving him the precise date that this would happen, though he didn't fully understand it at the time. In fact, in Daniel, Daniel 9, verse 25, we read that from the time uh, of Artaxerxes' decree, quote, to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Literally, seven weeks and 62 sevens, or seven sevens and 62 sevens. Seven referring to a week of years. So in other words, when you do the math, you have 483 years after Artaxerxes said to Nehemiah, go back to Jerusalem. After that, the Messiah the Prince would be presented to the Jewish nation, and that's exactly what happened on April 10th, 30 A.D. Likewise, our Lord's triumphal, but you might say humble, entry was predicted 500 years earlier by the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah 9 and verse 9, the text, by the way, that Matthew quotes in verse 5 of our text. There we read, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you! He is just in having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So all of these events were orchestrated by a sovereign God. And in his providence, he brings them all together to fulfill his purposes, as he continues to do even in our day. In fact, I believe all of Bible prophecy is to be fulfilled literally, as we have seen thus far in history. I believe Bible prophecy should therefore be interpreted by a literal, natural, normal sense, while taking into consideration figures of speech and symbolism, consistent with the original message and the intent of the Old Testament authors. I believe that the New Testament continues the narrative of the Old Testament prophets. And it's interesting that Jesus always expected a literal fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies in connection with his second coming. In fact, in Matthew 5:18, you will recall Jesus stated, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. And since Jesus is referring to everything that is stated in the law and the prophets, according to verse 17, that means that everything predicted in the Old Testament must happen. Think about that. The universe cannot pass away until everything transpires precisely the way God has predicted in his infallible record, the Word of God. So again, all of the events of history point to this time that was perfectly predetermined and fulfilled by our sovereign God. Another fascinating footnote, even the wicked high priest Caiaphas unwittingly fulfilled prophecy a few days earlier. There in front of the Sanhedrin, 
We read what he said in John 11:49. He says, "You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation should not perish." And then John went on to explain that Caiaphas did not say that quote on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. John 11, 49 through 51. By the way, as, as, as another little footnote here, isn't it great to know that God even uses wicked people, wicked leaders to accomplish his purpose? All right? So the next time you turn on Fox News and you start wringing your hands, just know God's still in charge. These people are unwitting fools, okay? God is using them to accomplish his purposes. So relax. So now in verse 1, Jesus approaches Jerusalem purposefully, voluntarily, obedient to do the Father's will. So, first of all, his coronation was preordained. Secondly, his coronation was symbolic. It's interesting in verse 2 what he does. He sends disciples to a predetermined, preordained location to secure for him, quote, a donkey tied there in a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says something to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. Now, Mark's gospel reveals that this is precisely what happened, uh, that they were tied outside near a door. A group asked them, you know, what are you doing? And they told them, oh, okay, fine, so you can go. By the way, such foreknowledge and omniscience is just another illustration of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I also see something else that is fascinating that I believe is embedded in this incidental scenario. Notice, there's two donkeys, a mare and her colt, which, by the way, they could have been about the same size as they often are. And Mark and Luke tell us that no one has ever sat upon the colt now, why is this significant? Well, the text doesn't really tell us. And I'm not going to start a new denomination with what I'm about to say, but this is something that I believe was probably going on and probably something sim symbolic here. And here I go back to my cowboy days and my horsemanship days. I know that it would be an absolute miracle for you to take a little colt like this that has never been ridden and do what they did. You know, donkeys are extremely temperamental. And in the cowboy world, if you ask any horseman about a donkey, there's a famous saying that goes like this, a donkey is like a horse, and even more so. You get the idea. In Genesis 9, we know that God warned Noah of a drastic change that would take place, that they would experience with the animals on the ark. In verse 2 it says, And the fear of you and the terror of you shall be on every beast of the earth. So at that time, this, this terror of man came upon all of the animals. And indeed, all creatures are terrified of men. And horses and donkeys are herbivores, and they have a natural fear of carnivores. We are carnivores. It's hard for them to trust us. They live in constant fear. It's part of the curse. They can smell us and know that we could eat them for dinner. So friends, I challenge you to take the garments of a carnivore and put it on a little colt that has never been ridden, and suddenly he smells meat and he thinks, I'm for dinner. And now you're going to get on this little colt that has never been ridden, and you're going to ask this little guy to ride over thousands of palm leaves with thousands of screaming carnivores waving palm branches. I mean, it's his worst nightmare. I have to say, I feel sorry for the little guy. Well, obviously, his creator calmed him, so it was a miracle. And yes, but I believe more than that, it was a foretaste of millennial blessing. 
that promised time of restoration and regeneration when both physically and spiritually things will change and the king of glory will reign. A time, according to Isaiah 11 and verse 6, when the wolf will dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. Beloved, I believe that hidden in this amazing scenario is an example of the power of Jesus miraculously canceling the effects of the curse in this young donkey that had never been ridden. A subtle affirmation whereby Jesus is saying, yes, I am the Almighty, I am the promised Messiah, the one who will one day accomplish all that I have promised. A time when is coming when the, the pristine happiness and peace of Eden will once again be upon the earth. A time of re- re- regeneration will come. A time of tranquility that is evidenced in this little guy that I'm writing. But today, he says, I'm, I'm coming on a beast of burden because I must bear the burden of your sins. Today, I come to save you from your sin, not from Rome. No, he was not a warrior like typical conquering kings. He's riding on a donkey. I mean, can you imagine that? I mean, that's humiliating. Imagine going to a rodeo and seeing the cowboys come out riding donkeys. I mean, I hope you understand that you just don't do that. Uh, Let me give you another example. It's like riding a moped to Sturgis when everybody else is on a Harley. You get the point? You just don't do that. But Jesus rode a lowly donkey. It was symbolic of humility, not the mighty steed of a conquering king. And though he was the Lord of lords, and he has myriads at his command, he's essentially saying, my invisible army awaits for another day when I will come again in power and great glory. Today my warriors are fishermen. Today my warriors are common folks that march on their knees in prayer. They are the meek and the lowly. Today I ride towards a temple, not a palace. My destination is a cross, not a throne. I come not to be crowned, but to be crucified. In fact, my crown is one of thorns, not one of jewels. My robe is not one of royal purple, but a peasant's cloak. And though I am the King of kings and Lord of lords, my kingdom is not of this world. So I come in humility, riding a donkey. So his coronation was predetermined and symbolic, but finally it was judicial. Notice verses 8 and 9. And most of the multitude spread their garments in the road. And others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The multitudes going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. It's fascinating, isn't it? They, they take their garments and they... They, they throw it on the road for him to ride over. You see, this was an ancient custom. When kings would come, the subjects would display their humility and their submission to his lordship by throwing their clothes down, allowing him to walk over them, so to speak. And the palm branches were always symbolic of joy and salvation. So you have this enormous multitude ahead of him and an enormous multitude behind him And they're saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna means save now, save now, son of David. Which was an exclamation of of supplication as well as adoration. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. By the way, there he is quoting Psalm 118 verse 26. It it was part of uh, the Psalms known as the Hallel, meaning praise. And these Psalms were sung at Passover, celebrating their deliverance from Egypt. But now in their mind, they're thinking the Messiah is coming to save us once again, not from Egypt, but from Rome. 
They thought, here's the great miracle worker, the one who has cast out demons, the one who has fed thousands, healed the sick, given sight to the blind, raised the dead. He has left us speechless with his teaching and his grasp of truth. Surely he will be the one to deliver us from our bondage, to meet all of our physical needs, to bring in the long-awaited kingdom. By the way, there's a distinct parallel that we see in our country today. People that want social justice, they want political power, they want redistribution of wealth. By the way, this is at the heart of black liberation theology that portrays Jesus as a liberator of white people. The same heresy that spawned the neo-Marxist groups that are causing so much problems today in our country. They wanted a Messiah that would raise a banner and march saying, Jews' lives matter. It's the same type of mentality. But no, Jesus did not come to be crowned, but to be crucified, to reconcile sinful men to a holy God, not to reconcile sinful men to other sinful men. And tragically, they failed to make the connection with Zechariah 9.9, that he would be coming uh, on a donkey. The, the Pharisees, I've thought about this, the Pharisees were brilliant scholars of the word. They would have had to have understood that this was indeed the long-awaited Messiah that the prophets spoke about. Surely they would have done their homework. And if they had done it well, they would have seen that the first messianic prophecy was recorded all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, where the coming Savior would come from, quote, the seed of the woman, a veiled but apt description of a virgin birth. In fact, Jesus' birth was predicted in Isaiah 7.14. Surely they would have read this. Behold, a young woman shall conceive and bear a son, and she'll call his name Emmanuel. Jesus' birthplace was also prophesied, Matthew 5.2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. They could have looked at all of the servant passages in Isaiah that are directly related to the birth of the Messiah, the life of the Messiah, the ministry of the Messiah. And then passages that would speak later on after he died and rose again. They could have read in Isaiah 40 and verse 3 in Malachi 3.1 that he would be heralded by a forerunner. Who was John the Baptist? His ministry began in, in Galilee, the, the tribal lands of Zebulun and Naphtali, as predicted in Isaiah 9 and verse 1. It's like, what are you guys thinking? Haven't you read these passages? He alone, of all Israel's prophets, filled the messianic expectations of giving sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf and healing uh, to those who are diseased and disabled. Exactly what Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 through 6. And then they could have gone to Isaiah chapter 42, the verse, first four verses that predicts how he would reveal himself, himself to Gentiles and they would believe in him. They could go to Isaiah chapter 52, beginning in verse 13, all the way through Isaiah 53, a chapter that describes, in summary, the Messiah's humiliation and exaltation. And as I stated earlier, they could have gone to Daniel chapter 9, verses 25 through 26, where the Messiah was predicted as the king of Israel that would come at that exact time. And he would ride on a donkey, as Zechariah 9 says. So many passages. I could go on and on with these Old Testament prophecies. But tragically, like people today, they believed what they wanted to believe. Some men prefer darkness rather than light. They hear a guy like me and they think, man, there's another knuckle-dragging Neanderthal that lives in a cave and believes that idiotic Bible stuff. That's literally how people think of us today. And folks, were it not for God's grace, we would be just like them. 
And the people followed these leaders who told them what they wanted to hear. This is why Paul commanded Timothy and all faithful preachers to preach the word despite its unpopularity, 2 Timothy 4.2. He went on to say, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. The indication there is that they will hear the word, they will hear sound teaching, and they will deliberately reject it. The Greek grammar is very clear on this. And as a result, they turn aside unto myths. Again, the grammar there indicates that they, that they will leave the truth without any awareness of their desertion, causing them to embrace a false gospel. They will get sucked into lies. They shall be turned, or they shall be turned to myths. Again, the idea that people will hear the truth, they won't like what they hear, they want something different, they want a different type of Jesus. And so they will unwittingly wander into counterfeits with no awareness of their departure from the true gospel. And then as an act of judicial hardening, God will harden their hearts and seal their fate with the very deceptions they prefer. I can't tell you how many times people will say, I can't believe people believe this stuff. Haven't you heard that? This is why, folks. It's judicial. Of course, it's satanic blindness. It's depravity to the natural man. The things of the spirit are foolishness. And they cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. All of that fits together. But folks, when people hear the truth and they say, I don't like that, then the myths will consume them. That's what happened then as it happens today. We see this today with the deceptive social justice gospel that derives its, its ideologies from the blasphemous, blasphemous distortions of intersectionality, of radical feminism, of critical race theory. Increasingly you see evangelicals turning away their ears from the truth of the true gospel and turning aside to all of these deceptions. The perverted gospel of our day is also one of love, 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 right? We just need to love people. Doesn't matter what. They, we just need to love people. Just take them where they are. Doesn't matter what they do. Just love people. With no regard for the offended holiness of God. No understanding of the wrath of God. No understanding of how people offend God when they violate his righteous standards. This is what was going on then in Jesus' day as it goes on today. And by the way, as a result today, the world for the most part has created some antinomian, anti-law God that winks at sin, that disregards sin, a God of their own making, a God that does not judge, right? A God that adjusts his views of morality according to man's depraved standard. God is love. God is love. You never hear about the other side of that. that a God is also a God of wrath. Jesus said in John 3.36, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. Boy, there's love, right? But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. People today, like then, in Jesus' day, have no understanding of Psalm 34, 15 and 16 that provides a balanced view of God's character, of a God of love, but also a God of judicial wrath. He says, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. My, there's the love of God. But then the next phrase is the other side of the coin. But the face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. This is what happens when people reject the truth. And then you end up with a society that literally legislates unrighteousness and criminalizes righteousness. And then when the truth of the gospel 
is rejected with full knowledge. Hebrews 6, 6 says it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. In other words, what you end up doing is you take your stand with the mockers and the scoffers who say, crucify him, we will not have this man reign over us. He's an imposter, imposter, he is a fraud, he is a charlatan, he is a blasphemer. Put him to open shame, he's guilty as charged. So even the religious leaders of Israel fabricated a deliverer of their own making, one that had no resemblance of the true Savior that was right before them. And as stated earlier, they did not know that Jesus had initiated all of this as a judgment against them, causing them to affirm his messianic credentials by crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. But again, by the end of the week, they would say, we will not have this man reign over us. Crucify him. Back to our text. As we wrap this up this morning in verses 10 and 11, we read, when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. It's incredible. There was virtually no disease in Palestine because of what he had done. And these people don't know who he is? They couldn't accurately identify who he is? How tragic. Their fickle faith, their stubborn unbelief, their granite indifference became the very evidence that God would use against them to seal their eternal doom. By the way, this too was also predicted in Isaiah 6. Remember when Isaiah had seen the Lord Jesus Christ high and lifted up? Later on, God says to him, go and tell this people. Isaiah, here's what I want you to tell this people. Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. That's the judgment against them. And then he went on to tell Isaiah, Isaiah, render the hearts of this people insensitive. Render their hearts dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. In other words, because they have rejected the truth for so long, I am going to judicially harden their hearts. Oh, dear friend, I hope you're not in that category today. Many people today are so consumed, like those Jews in the first century, so consumed with physical comforts, they are so earthbound that they give no thought to their spiritual condition. They give no thought to what is going to happen to them in eternity. And they care nothing about God and his word. They just live for themselves. Dear friend, I ask you to examine your own heart. What will you do with Jesus? King Jesus, is he your savior? Is he your king? Do you pray with all of your heart, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Well, I can't wait for that day. Or do you just live for yourself? Are you the master of your own little kingdom with no thought of of eternity, unwilling to bow before the omnipotent Savior? that created you and died for you. You know, a day is coming when at his name, according to Philippians 2.10, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I just came back from a trip to Florida I was there for, Nancy and I were there for over a week. Had a chance to be all the way down in the Everglades and to fish. And I saw signs all over Florida, very strong conservative state. And one of them that kept popping up was this. One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And then in red letters underneath that it said, 
even the Democrats. And I wish they would add even the independents and the Republicans. Every knee is going to bow. And dear friends, one day, every person that's hearing my voice this morning is going to bow before the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will either be your savior and your king or your judge and executioner. You will either trust in him as the only hope of your salvation or you will reject him and you will pay for your sins forever in an eternal hell. So I plead with you as a minister of the gospel to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in him and be saved today. Bow before his majesty. Submit to his lordship. Worship him in spirit and in truth. And experience the joy of sins forgiven in the hope of heaven. Folks, aren't you glad that we have that? Aren't you glad that the king is coming? Only this time he won't be on a donkey. By the way, he won't be on a white horse either. That's symbolic. But nobody's going to miss him. And I can't wait for that day. I hope you join with me in longing for that time to come. But until it does, let's serve the king, right? Let's serve him and honor him and watch what he will do for us so that we can experience all of the blessings that he longs to bestow upon his own. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these eternal truths. I pray that they will find lodging in our heart and that they will bear much fruit to the praise of your glory as we live out our lives as your people. And Lord, for those who do not know you, I pray once again that you will so overwhelm them with the reality of their sin and the reality that the wrath of God abides upon them, that they will, by the power of your Spirit, repent and ask you to save them on the basis of the sacrificial blood of the Passover lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Lord, we commit it all to you. We thank you. We give you praise in all things. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.